In Judges 21, verse 25, we read these verse, this verse. It says, In those days Israel did not have a king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. That's kind of where we left off last week in the story. Uh, we actually covered the, the book of Ruth last week, a kind of a story that was kind of in between. But basically finishing up the period of the judges that we've talked about so far. Uh, and if you've uh, been with us, we've been, we're in chapter 10 of the story this week, uh, looking at the whole thing of about where Israel comes to a place of uh, this void in their leadership. Uh, this verse kind of, in a sense, I don't know about you, if I look at that, all the people did whatever was right or seemed right in their own eyes. It seems like a recipe for disaster, does it not? If we just all do what we want to do. Uh, and it stays that way in the, the nation until the book of First Samuel. Uh, there was still no consistent leadership in the nation of Israel for over 400 years, and everybody was still doing what they wanted to do. And Israel was under the oppression of the Philistines and Ammonites, and there didn't seem to be any end in sight for all the things that were going on. That's what we've been reading about in the story, God's story of, 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 uh, of the people of God and how he inter- interacted with them. In chapter 10 of the story, though, we began to see some changes. And there was a person named Hannah there that we were introduced to. Just a little video just kind of introduced you to Hannah as well, if you've read it this week. And Hannah was a lady who had an interesting story. Uh, and she was a person who could not have kids for a long period of time. And she cried out to God. And finally, she had a son. And the son was born. His name was Samuel. And Samuel was born. And the interesting thing about Samuel, and we think it culturally is kind of strange. She said, God, if you'll let me have this child I've always wanted, I will dedicate him wholly to you. And that means we think, you know, when we think that dedicating our child wholly to God, we come forward and we have parent-child dedication. And we do that, and that's, we say we as parents will dedicate ourselves to raising our kids in, a, in an honoring way. But this took it a whole, long, a whole step further because she said, I will dedicate my child wholly to you. I'll actually take my child to the temple and let him be raised by the priest there to serve God all of his life. And that's what she did. And so we see Samuel rising up or growing up in the first few chapters of 1 Samuel is this young boy in, in, a, in a household there with Eli the priest and with his two sons. And uh, Samuel's trained to be a priest. And even though he grows up in his household, you think, well, this is a good place to be. You know, he grows up at church. Well, it seems that the two sons, the other two sons of Eli, um, were not necessarily living uh, the way that God would want them to. And so we see through these first few chapters, and I'm just going through these quickly today because we never have time to cover all the things in the story every week, so I have to focus our attention, and I'm bringing you up to where we're going to be today. But we come to the first few chapters that there. Samuel rules for a while by default in a sense because that was kind of the kind of leadership that was going on in that day and age. Uh, what, whatever judge happened to be, it might have been a spiritual leader, it might be a military leader like Samson, it might be you know like Deborah, we talked about them, like Gideon, other leaders there. But Samuel became like a leader there amongst the people. And uh, he, was, he did the best he could in leading the people, even though they didn't have a real clear, clear leadership structure. But as he's getting old and the people notice that his sons are corrupt, they come to him and they say this in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And this is kind of where I want to begin today. We want to focus our attention upon this process of what happens here when the people come to Samuel, or come to Samuel in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4, it says... So all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, you are old. <laughs> Don't you love that? People just straightforward. You know, look at them. You're old. Yeah, thank you. Uh, they said to him, you're old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Then a couple of verses later in 1 Samuel 8, 7, it says, And the Lord told him, talking to Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying to you. 
It is not you that they have rejected, Samuel, but they have rejected me, God, as their king. And so that's the first thing. It kind of sets up a scenario here. In the next few verses in chapter 8 of, uh, of, of 1 Samuel, we read this story where God says to him, okay, listen to the people. They want a king. Now, he, God's not saying this is the best for them. He says, warn them, though. Warn them about what that will mean. And so if you could read those verses, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time reading those today, but in those next few verses, he says, listen to me. He's some of the things he says. He said, "Here's he's, this is what a king will do for you. He will reign over you. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will... Uh, he will take your, your ground and he will take your, the best of your harvest. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of all of your grain. And he, you go through, he's, he's going to do this. This is what the king's going to do for you in, in exchange for his leadership. He warns them the best that he can. Samuel warns them because God has told him to warn them. Yeah, you want a king like everybody else has? This is what you're going to get if you get a king. You don't see all the, the, the downside of having a king. And so he tells them to tell them that up front. And so we read that. He warns them about the outcome. But like so, and this is a case sometimes where God, in a sense, he allows his immature children to get what they desire to prove a point. You ever done that with your kids? Your kids keep saying, I want this, I need this. Rah, 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 rah. And you know, and they go through this whole process of saying stuff and you're finally going, okay, just go ahead and do it. You know? And then they pay the consequences of it. Some parents, I think sometimes that's not a bad parenting skill. I don't mean you could let your kid fall off a cliff or anything, but the thing is sometimes you gotta allow them to fall. You know, we can protect our kids only so much. And sometimes the only way they learn is by what? Is by doing and failing. And that's what God was, in a sense, was doing here. That wasn't his plan. It wasn't what was going on. I'll never forget, uh, years ago when I was a youth pastor, uh, we did a thing, that I, sometimes we've, I think we've done it here two or three times, uh, we did a thing called a 40-hour famine. You ever heard of that? 40-hour famine. It's a thing where you kind of work on, it's dealing with world hunger and stuff. And the, the idea is, is you have your youth group come together, and for 40 hours, you, fa- you have a famine. Or you have a, uh, uh, you fast. And uh, we actually fasted for 40 hours. And, uh, you know, for teenagers, that's like, boy, that's like a year. And I'll never forget, there's this one kid in our youth group. We, my wife uh, teaches health and nutrition stuff, and she's really good at that. And she understands the whole, con- the whole thing about what's going on. And so she, uh, she told him, I had her come in and I say, honey, tell him how the, the go, about going, coming into the fast and going out of the fast. Because if you don't, you're going to get messed up. And so going into the fast, you know, kind of go into it. Don't eat a lot of heavy foods and stuff like that because you're going you're gonna to empty your stomach pretty soon. <laughs> okay? Because you're going to be drinking a lot of fluids and nothing else. For 40 hours. And then at the end of the fast, you break your fast. That's what breakfast is, breaking your fast overnight. When you break your fast by eating something that's like not too hard on your stomach, because you, your stomach is kind of relaxed over the last 40 hours. It's not used to not going 40 hours. I, I can tell you from experience of fasting that you've got to be careful what you come off fast eating. And uh, I, I've done fast for three days. I've done it for two weeks, you know, different times for different reasons. And... Um, the thing is, is that you can, and so I remember this one kid in our youth group, he was a football player for Salem High School, which had won like five state championships. He's a big old dude. And, uh, he decided he was going to do this thing. And, uh, 
<laughs> right before it, he'd, he'd heard everything she said. So right before it, he eats this humongous meal, you know, right before it. And so all the time during the fast, he's just moaning and groaning and whatever. And at the end of the 40-hour fast, he's thinking, well, if I just eat some food, man, I'll feel so much better. And I go over to this place called K&W Cafeteria that's in town there in Salem, Virginia. Uh, we don't have one exactly like it here, but it's this place where you go in and you just take a tray and you just load up with food. What, you know, I want this, I want this, I want this. He had two trays. And he was going down the line and he had like four entrees and all this stuff. This was at the end of his fast, not eating for, for 40 hours. Guess what happened to him after he ate all that food? It wasn't pretty. It really wasn't pretty. And the thing is, is that we, we told him so. But sometimes you cannot learn unless you experience it. And that's what the people were doing here in a sense. What they were doing is God was saying, hey, you've rejected me. And they were looking at, going back to what it said in 1 Samuel 8, 22, uh, or what it says there. God says to them, he says, go ahead, listen to them and give them a king. That's what they want. That's what they'll get. See, Israel chose an earthly king over the leadership of God. And the choice, while it, it isn't quite that straightforward, even though it seems to make sense, the reason that they wanted that, that was they saw no better option, is because they were so nearsighted. The reason they saw this as the best option, they were so nearsighted. They did not think back to what God had already done. I mean, we've been studying the story now for, for nine weeks before this. Okay, what has God done in his leadership with Israel? Nothing, you know, he didn't, you know. How about the, the Exodus, when they crossed the Red Sea? Who fought the battle for him? And the Egyptians were coming, they get to the Red Sea, he parts the sea, they go across. They don't even have to fight at that one, I mean, God just takes care of the whole thing. And then we get to the story of Rahab and, and the story of Jericho. How did God fight that battle? I mean, how did the Israelites fight the battle? They really didn't do much, they marched around playing trumpets. And God took care of that. Then we come to the story of Gideon, you know, and we talked about that three or four weeks ago. And, and Gideon, and how did God, you know, there was this, all these people that were, that were, that were oppressing them and stuff. And, and there was like 133,000 of them, and, and there was only like 32,000 Israelites, and God honed it down to 300, and we're going like, well, how does that work? You know? Every time in the history of the people of Israel up to this point in time, it was God that was fighting the battles for them. God had been their leader. But then they'd gone through this 400-year period, year period of time where they had forgotten about those things. They were so focused on what was going on around them that they totally, totally, totally started making some foolish choices. And it caused them to have some really bad consequences. That's what I want to focus on today. Three foolish choices that the Israelites made by choosing a king over God. And what it led to in their lives. And how does it apply to us today in our lives? And I want us to think as I talk about these, I mean, how do we make these same foolish choices in our lives? Because we do. The first foolish choice they made when they said, hey, I want a king, was this. They chose God, they chose power over purpose. They chose power over purpose. In Genesis 12, when God called Abraham as the father of his new nation, he just didn't call God, he just, God didn't just make a nation there. He made a nation with a purpose. It was a nation with a purpose. The way God led Israel, the way they won their battles, the way his power was on display had a purpose. That people would see that God was powerful and it wasn't Israel. 
that God was parable. That was the purpose of God using the people. You know, so often we think, you know, the, the reason that God chose Israel is because they're such great. No, they're people. He just chose a nation to use. He could have chosen anybody to use. He chose them to use to, to as long as they followed him, that people would see God and his power, not the nation of Israel. And so the thing was is that that's what happened here. And, and they choose, they choose this, uh, they forget about the purpose that God had created them for. And in 1 Samuel 8, the people forget all about that purpose. They lose sight of the big picture, the upper story we've been talking about of what God has been doing with their nation. And so this small choice of choosing a king, it seems like a small choice, leads down a bad road. 1 Samuel 8, 5, um, going back to that where we were earlier, it says this, they said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us. This is the key verse, such as all the other nations have. Such as all the other nations have. What are they doing? Where is their focus? What is Israel's focus at this point? With the struggle they're going through, lack of leadership, instead of turning back to the God who has led them for the past thousand years, what do they do? They look around and they're going like, oh, let's be like everybody else. I mean, the nations that seem to be strong have a king. Let's have a king. And so they look to earthly solutions for their problems. And they're motivated. The reason that they do this, they're motivated by fear. So instead of remembering and living by their purpose, they use the same strategy that other nations have. They said, let's just fix it ourselves. And they think, well, you know, if, if we do that, if we have a king, we have a strong military, whatever, nobody will mess with us then. Because they've been messed with a lot through history up to this point. But they forgot their purpose. The purpose of the way their nation fights battles is to point people to God. And so because of that, they decide, let's do it everybody else's way. And they forgot their greatest military conquest were when they were dramatically outnumbered by the people around them. That is why God chooses so often to raise up unknowns like Samuel and others to, to raise them. That's what he did throughout his his, their history. Gideon, unknown. Deborah, unknown. Samson, kind of known, but not in the right way. But the thing is, God used those people. I, I'll never forget, uh, a few years ago, I was at a leadership summit, which is a, um, an event that happens where they bring in leaders of churches, church leaders and, and business leaders and stuff, and they come together. We talk about leadership for about two days. And, and I remember, never forget, that one person that made the greatest impact on me there was a guy who was the most humble guy at the whole, at the whole summit. His guy, name was Wes Stafford. Wes Stafford uh, is the president of Compassion International. I don't know if you know anything about Compassion International or not, but their whole purpose in ministry is to, is to reach children in undeveloped countries and help them, the children that have nobody to speak for them. Wes Stafford didn't have a great, I mean, he, he wouldn't be somebody you would think of that would come and head up a great organization, but what happened? He grew up as the, a child of a missionary, of missionaries in West Africa. Growing up in a village out in a remote place, he had no connections with anybody, he didn't have any networking with anybody, he just had this desire, in a real sense, to do something in a big way, but he knew there was a problem and he only, and he began to pray about how God could, could work through him and others. And through him just humbly turning himself to God and God giving him direction, what happened was it came up with this incredible, incredibly, uh, efficient organization called Compassion International, which reaches th- millions of kids in third world countries all over the world. See, God, when we do it God's way, when we turn to him and we make him our king, instead of trying to do it the way the way everybody else around us, by power or by prestige or whatever it happens to be, 
He's, God is telling us, you see, that's, that's the way that we're supposed to do it. And so we struggle with this thing sometimes. You know, sometimes I struggle with this issue of power or purpose. So often I fall into the trap that we have in a culture that says, well, you know, if you're a pastor of a church, the bigger your church is, the more prestige you have. When I was pastor of a 200-member church or 200-attender church, you know, I'm going like, well, that's all right. That's average. Last week we had 600 here. I'm glad to see all you guys here today. I didn't think it would be anybody here today, truthfully. You know why? It's a, it's a five-day weekend for schools in Germantown Hills. I don't know how you get those, how many days off, but some way the elementaries get off forever around here. Do y'all ever go to school at all? I don't know. Yeah, I guess you do. And then also 80 of our students, 80 of our teenagers are, at, are, are on a road trip uh, up to Indianapolis. So we have almost all of our high school students, 80 of them plus leaders gone. So it's this huge gap. But man, you guys all filled in the gaps this morning. Thank you. You're all here. But the issue is, is I struggle with this so often because, you know, I think that my value and my worth comes from how big Great Oaks becomes. But, you know, that's foolish. That's pride. And so we have to get past that in a real sense. And so, so we have to understand, understand what it is here. They chose, the first foolish, foolish thing they chose was this whole thing of choosing power over purpose. What is God's purpose for your life? In Psalm 27, David says this. He says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. In Zechariah 4, 6, it says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That is, the, that is what we do. We follow, follow God's purposes in our life. So we have to choose, in a sense, to allow God's purpose to take the precedence over everything else in our life. Every a desire of every outcome needs to be according to God's purposes. And the temptation for Israel here was to choose the power that they could see right in front of them. It was short-term thinking. The things that was very tangible, we can grab a hold of. We have a king, that'll be our solution to our problem. But God warned them, that's not going to be the solution to your problem. And so even though Samuel warned them, they made the choice for military power in the form of a king. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 19 and 20, this is what it says. We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. You know, the desire for normalization to be like everybody else is usually the first step away from God. It really is. You know, I hate to say this, but in our culture, if we follow the plan of culture, most of the time it's away from God. Because culture is not led generally by God. Uh, we're told, you know, we, we think as, as Christians, you know, the main thing is, or as people, it's good to blend in. But you know, the Bible never tells us to blend in. You know, matter of fact, it says the opposite. I mean, not just one time, but numerous times. This is what the Bible says. It's, it's, it says we're to stand out. It says throughout the New Testament, we're ch- told us that the church is to be people who are set apart. Literally, the word church, ekklesia, which is the uh, Greek word for church, means to be set apart different called out ones the bible talks about how we are strangers and aliens in this world that we're not of this world but going back to israel the people of israel wouldn't listen to god they wouldn't listen to samuel and so samuel god tells them samuel anoint saul the king and it's kind of interesting here because the description of Saul is the perfect picture of what you would expect an earthly king to look like. He is tall, and he is handsome, and he's young. 
Oh, I got one out of three, okay? <laughs> I thought about that. I'm going like, oh, that list is not good. Okay. But that's what they choose. They choose somebody and says his qualifications. They don't, that's the qualifications of him being king. He stood head and tall, shoulders above everybody else. He was a good-looking guy, it says. And he was young. Doesn't say anything about his leadership skills at all. And so they choose him, they choose him to be a king. And that's, that's the first mistake they made. But you know, let me guess, okay, tall, handsome, young. Saul. That's your one choice as king. Over here, I can't do this. God. Okay? Omniscient, all powerful, all the omnis. Okay? Everything. Omnipresent, everything. Who is a better king? No choice. But when you want to see something right in front of you, you want to have a short-term solution, usually this is where you'll go. The thing that's obvious right in front of you instead of trusting in God. And that's the first foolish choice they made. And it led to their destruction eventually. And it led to Saul's destruction as well. Second foolish choice they made was circumstances over salvation. Circumstances over salvation. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel is uh, going to begin a transition of leadership from from himself as God's representative to Saul as the king. And it's and he's going to give his farewell speech in a sense, okay? That's what he does in chapter 12. And the transition is not perfectly smooth, but Saul has been appointed king, but this is this is Samuel's farewell speech. He says this in 1 Samuel chapter 12 verses 12 and following. He he reminds the people, "But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, were were moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, this tall, good-looking young guy, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. We'll go along with your plan, guys, okay? Then he says this. This is the warning. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good! Then there's this thing, disclaimer. He said, but, there's always the but, you know. Good, it's going to be good if you do this. But, if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Basically, he goes through and he recaps the history of Israel. And he says, folks, when, guys, when we followed God as a country, as a nation... Everything didn't go perfectly, but we were blessed. But when we turned away from God, you remember the times, and there was a cycle we've talked about in the history of Israel where they would, especially through the period of the judges, the last 400 years prior to this, where they had, they had turned and, and they turned away from God, they'd been oppressed, they need somebody to, to bring them back, and, and they'd gone through this cycle, this, this cycle of just chaos in their life. And it was this cycle he was recapping for them. It all began with this nearsighted plan, uh, you know, of, of them only seeing the things right in front of them. They're, they allowed their circumstances to overwhelm them from time to time. And they became too nearsighted to see what God could do in the big picture. The question I began to ask myself when I read this and was thinking about this week is, how do we respond? I mean, we can go along and say, like, you know, I mean, these people, they should have known better. They've seen God do incredible things, you know. 
If they knew their history, I mean, how many of us have had God do so many things in our life, even in the history of our family, like parting of Red Seas, you know, walking around Jericho, walls falling down. I mean, very literal things that God had done for them. They, but they, we were like, how could they forget this? Because they were looking right at their current circumstances. We are so, we forget things so quickly, do we not? And how, so how do we respond to circumstances around us? Do we remember what God has done for us in years past? So when we come to a crisis in our life, is our first response to go to God in prayer and say, God, I humbly come to you, and I don't know what else to do, but every time I come to you, you kind of lead me through this, and I get through this, and, and I know you've done it in the past? Or do we do what most people do? Do we focus on the situation in front of us and simply say, i got to fix it myself? What do we do? I will share with you, I mean, I don't have any better memory than you do, okay? But one of the secrets for me in times, that uh, good times and bad times, has been something I do on and off in my life. I don't do it every day, but I do it sometimes. It's called journaling. And journaling is simply I sit down and I write down on a regular basis the things that God is doing in my life on a day-to-day basis. It may be a page. It may be a paragraph. I have old, I buy cheap notebooks at Walmart, you know, the little ones, you know. And I have one page for a day, and I'll write down, God, today, this is what you're doing in my life. And I will tell you, when I go through tough times, one of the first things I've learned to do is to go back and pull out those notebooks and read what God has done in my past. Instead of focusing on the circumstance in front of me, because I know that God has brought me through things that I could, he's been there. So how do we respond to the circumstances in life? Do we do it like the, the Israelites do? Do we respond to the circumstances? Or do we respond to the fact that God is there, he's saved us, he's, he's redeemed us, he's, he's brought us out of where we, where we are and where we were? That's the second thing. The third foolish choice they make is options over obedience. Options over obedience. Um, Saul started off pretty good as king. He really did. Despite the fact that, you know, he was not, you know, the most well-trained guy. He, he, you know, he was tall. He was handsome. He was, you know, young. He still started off pretty good as king. And he obeyed God for a while. He really did. He followed him pretty well for a while. But then something happened. He started looking at himself. He started seeing some victories. He started seeing some things. They became nearsighted. He stopped seeing the big picture of God's work in and through him, and he thought it was all about himself. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we're not going to read all that today, but 1 Samuel chapter 15, it's, let me tell you, I don't know if, if you read this this week, this is a chapter that gives us problems because of what God says for him to do. My wife and I had a discussion about this this week. I didn't explain it to her very well, by the way. But the issue was, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 15, it says, it says this, it says, the Lord said to Samuel, um, he talks to him and he says to him, excuse me, I'm wrong chapter here. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people, Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. And then what happens is God tells Saul through Samuel that this is what you're to do. You're to go and you're to t- go to this nation called the Amalekites. And what you're to do is you're to wipe them off the face of the earth. Men, women, children, animals, everything. And you're going like, this is where people have problems. God told them to do that. Well, it wasn't a random choice by God. 
Because if we look back at the history for the last several hundred years, the Amalekites were the people that were constantly turning against God. They were the, one of the first groups of people that encountered, encountered people when they, when they were going to the promised land. They were one of the ones that had been there all along the way. They had been a thorn in Israel's flesh. And remember when God made a covenant with Abram, he said, he said to him, he said, I will bless those who do what? Who bless you? And I will curse those who curse you? That's been a theme throughout all scripture. And the Amalekites were probably the ones that most cursed the Israelites. They had most turned against God. They were basically an incredibly, I don't know, evil people as a group. And so we read this, and I just can't tell you, no, it seems harsh in a sense that God would say this, but there's a purpose here, at least in teaching, that God wants him to do this. And so he he tells him to do this. And so Saul and his army goes into battle against the Amalekites, and they 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 white they start the, killing everybody just about people, cattle, sheep, possessions. But it says that Saul kept some things back himself. It says um, in verse nine, he says, "But Saul, there, that's once again, that's that but again, you know, buts will get you in trouble all the time." But Saul, he decided to do something different. And what he decided to do was to spare the life of the king, King Agag. What a great name. King Agag of, 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 this, of these people. He decides to save them and also some of the best of the sheep and the cattle. And, the, and, and his army spared some of those people as well, the fat calves and the lambs. Everything that they thought was good. They were unwilling to, to completely destroy these things. And I love the confrontation when Samuel comes before Saul at, after this battle and what he says. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is just great. It kind of sounds like a conversation between a parent and a child. Guess which one's whom? 1 Samuel fifteen thirteen. After the battle, after they'd been told to destroy everything, after they had not destroyed everything, it says this in, first, in verse 13. When Samuel reached out to him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. Look at me. I've done good, Daddy. You usually know that's a problem when the child comes to you and says something like that. Right? Some ulterior motive, maybe. Maybe they haven't done anything good. They're trying to get on your good side real quick. Sounds like a child, little child caught stealing cookies and still got chocolate on his mouth or something, you know. Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? I mean, if you destroyed everything, cattle and sheep and everything too, why, why do I hear this? They shouldn't be anything like that. And then he said, and then he, he gets caught. And so what does you do when you get caught? You blame others. Isn't that the natural way? Well, it was, it's not me, mommy. It was, it was my brother. And he says this, he says in verse 15, verse, um, verse 15, he says, Saul answered him, the soldiers, they're the ones that did it. They're the ones that brought them from the Malachites. They spared the best of the sheep, the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. And then Saul becomes defensive and responds in pride in verses 19 through 22. It says this, why did you, uh, Samuel says, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went out to the, on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back King Agag their, and brought back Agag their king. Now, that sentence in itself says what? 
It's a lie. He first says, I just completely destroyed them. But, oh, by the way, I did bring back the king. So he didn't completely destroy them. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God. And he did this for a good reason. I did it in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And then a key verse here, the very next part of the verse, Samuel replies, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. You heard that one before? To obey is better than sacrifice. Remember that. That's the key today. To obey is better than sacrifice. See, what, what Saul did is what I call almost obedience. It was heading in the direction of obedience, but it was just almost obedience. God gave him clear directions. I mean, you cannot be any more clear than God gave him directions there. And Saul and his army kind of carried them out, but not completely. He wanted to keep his options open. And so often we do the same thing. You know... It's almost obedience when God impresses on you or me that he wants us to do something specific. Say, he wants you to go on a missions trip, but you're going like, I don't know if I want to go there or not. I tell you what, I'll just give some. That's almost obedience. God impresses on you that your neighbor next door needs to know about God, about him, and you know that you know enough about to share. You don't, don't have to know, you know a whole lot. Just go share. But you're going like, I don't know about that. I'll, maybe next year I'll invite him to Easter. That's good, invite him to Easter. But, you know, if God's impressing you, do it. Why are you waiting that long? God tells you that the next step after you say yes to Jesus Christ, and that may be the step for some of you to say yes to Jesus Christ, he said the next step after that scripture says is to be baptized as, a, as an act of obedience. And you're going like, well, you know, I'll think about it for a year, or two years, or five years or ten years. That's almost obedience. See, God, God's word clearly teaches all of us about giving. This is something we don't want to talk about, but he says that we're to give a tenth of our income to him as an act of obedience to him and, and simply to come to him and say, God, this is all, everything is not mine, it's yours. And we're going like, well, you know, I believe that. I've read that verse. There's verses, not a verse, verses about that. But at the same time, you know, you don't understand, God. I have all these bills. I'll work on that later, down the road, sometime when I'm debt-free. Like that's ever going to happen. See, when you choose options over obedience, we say to God, I really do not want you as my king. Almost obedience is not obedience. It's not heading in that way. I love what the New Testament says, and there's so many verses that says this, but in John 14, it says this. Jesus says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. There are some black and white things in Scripture that we can understand pretty clearly that we just need to learn and obey. And in James 4.10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. See, that's what the Israelites forgot. 
They tried to fix it themselves. They wanted a king. They wanted all this. And they made these decisions, these poor decisions along the way that affected not only their, 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 their time then, but their, all the rest of their history. Israel's cry for a new king was marked by a series of nearsighted choices. They couldn't see that by choosing a human king, they were choosing against God. They couldn't see that the lust for power derailed God's purpose for them as a nation. They couldn't see that God they couldn't see God's salvation in the midst of their circumstances. And they and Saul wanted to create his own options rather than obeying God's word. They were too nearsighted to see God's work in the world. And we, in a sense, are faced with the same kind of problems and questions today. Do we want God to be our king? Do we want God to be our king? Or someone else or something else? Will you seek power for yourself? Will you fulfill God's purpose for blessing others with your life? Will you get caught up in the circumstances of a life or you wait on God's salvation and trust in him for your, for your salvation? Will you obey or will you rationalize? That's what they did. That's what we can do as well. That's what we often do. See, God wants us to, wants to be the king. And he wants to be the king so badly that he came down to earth to prove it to us. When he was beaten by Roman guards, he stood silently and endured it. He chose his purpose over power. When he was mocked while hanging on a cross, suffocating to death, he chose salvation over the circumstances because he could have moved off the cross. He was God if he wanted to. And when he prayed, not my will, but yours be done, he chose obedience over options. And when he walked out of the grave three days later, he proclaimed forever, I am the only king you will ever need. That's our choice. Is God our king? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Great Oaks Community Church's weekly podcast. For more series and podcast information, go to greatoakcc.org.